This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Uh, so who answers a job posting on Craigslist and ends up in the White House? And who gets their very first book optioned for a movie? Well, the lucky plucky person is the author joining us tonight, Beck Dory Stein. Beck is a Wesleyan grad, has been a high school English teacher, and has worked as a stenographer in the White House from 2012 to 2017, which takes up a big part of the book that we're going to hear about. She joins us as the author of From the Corner of the Oval. Her book has gotten rave reviews, and I love these. It's been described uh, as West Wing meets Devil Wears Prada. But the one that I liked, which I think Paul Begala came up with, is C-SPAN meets Sex in the City. So we're going to go with C-SPAN meets Sex in the City. Uh, Beck, welcome to Wesley and RJ Joyas. Thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so I'm going to start with two obvious questions. Why would the White House be posting a job ad on Craigslist? Yeah, I know. That's a great question. Uh, it makes everyone really nervous. I like to say that I was overqualified for the Obama administration and under, or underqualified for the Obama administration and overqualified for the Trump administration. And I feel like that upsets you. You're not going to like anything else I have to say today. Um, but basically, I was hired by a third-party contractor. Uh, the stenographers in the White House had been there since Reagan, uh, my boss was there for 35 years, and so we were not political hires. Uh, we were contracted to be there, and as a result, normally they hired internally. We had been hired by people uh, who went to State Department, worked in this office, and then ultimately you would rise to the top and you would get promoted to work in the White House. And I had the lucky uh, happenstance of having taught at Sidwell Friends, uh, where the Obama girls attended. As a result of that, I already had a background clearance. And so when I applied to this job on Craigslist, thinking it was for a position as a stenographer in a law office, uh, they saw it. They sort of flagged it. So I was like, this is a strange candidate. She's taught high school. She's an English major. And she already has a background clearance from Sidwell. And then I ended up blowing off the interview because uh, my shift at Lululemon ran late. But And so as a result, because of those things, I sort of rose to the top. I skyrocketed to the top of the stenographer <laughs> pile. Uh, so I, I like to brag that probably my crowning achievement is that I was the first and last Craigslist hire. Uh, and as a result, you know, on Air Force One, Pete Souza, would, if I was getting too crazy, the photographer Pete Souza would be like, get the Craigslister off the plate. <laughs> so rest assured, I'm the only one that uh, has yeah, that specific... It well, yeah, it could make you nervous, yeah. right? I mean, no more nervous than anything else going on, I would say. Well, that's yeah. right. But using that time frame, you yes. know, that, that yes. headspace. Yes. Now, the second obvious question is, what does a stenographer in the White House do? Because I'm of the age where I think of somebody who's like a speed writer writing all those doodles that you learn that shorthand. mean a word. Shorthand. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. But you're not doing that. No, I was totally underqualified. Um, I actually was just on jury duty on Monday and I saw a real life stenographer, courtroom stenographer, and it was like a celebrity sighting. I was just like, oh my God, watch her work. Uh, I had none of those skills. I was basically hired and I worked on Microsoft uh, Word and we had a foot pedal. So it would sort of allow us to manipulate sound, uh, rewind and fast forward. But it was very much, we were there as a record for the press office as a line of defense so that the president wasn't misquoted in front of any member of the press. So with these phone calls and these transcripts that are currently being referenced, we would never be on those. It was very much just if there was a member of the press present with the president, we wanted to make sure there was a transcript that everyone could refer to, that there was one recording, there was one audio that we all knew was the right one. So you had equipment. Yeah, usually the same thing that journalists use, just a little recorder. And so you were like the fly on the wall all the time? I was like a cockroach in a skirt suit where like (laughs) if the lights went on, you would sort of scurry. But for the most part, yeah, it was just like blend into the wallpaper, don't say anything, but always be there. Basically be like a paid stalker. Perfect. Yeah. What a good job. I know. It was a great job for me. And you would, so you weren't recording uh, the president's side of a phone call? No. And he wouldn't be on... Unless it was with a member of the press. I was just going to say. So if he did a radio interview, or if you remember on election day, he would do this crazy circuit of like 30 three-minute interviews with different radio hosts around the country. And we were on for those. It was just with members of the press. With members, with um, heads of state, it was very much the idea was they should be allowed to speak without worrying that there's a record. So one of the reactions I had, I mean, I had a lot of reactions of reading the book, and I had a blast reading it. It was just so much fun. And I laughed out loud often. But the thing I think I laughed out loud maybe the most at was you packing for your first overnight trip. So describe for these lovely people what happened when you packed for your first overnight. Uh, So my first overnight, you know, you get to fly on Air Force One. It's all very exciting. But at the end of the day, it's any job where you're having your first overnight experience and you want to look appropriate, you want to look professional, but also you're going to be sleeping in a hotel far from home. I always think of Grover sleeps over where you're just like, what are they going to have and what are they not going to have? And what about my toothbrush? So I basically packed as if I was moving away and never coming home. I had an outfit for like every climate and we did. I mean, especially traveling with the president, you do make more stops than you do on a commercial flight. You know, you can hit seven cities in a day and it's not that crazy. So uh, one of but the would you pack it in? I packed it in a red duffel that I had. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I always attended Haverford soccer camp in the summer. And I had this big red duffel that at that point was 15 years old. It, had, it was threadbare. It had seen better days, but it was big. So it could, you know, uh, fit my four pairs of boots. But big like snake big, right? Like a big round thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it can fit all your soccer equipment. Right. Yep. Uh, everyone else had like these really uh, fancy black suitcases I would later learn were Toomey suitcases. I had no idea what a Toomey suitcase is. Now I do because of these years of like, oh, that black label is the ultimate label. But I didn't know. Uh, so I had that red big duffel bag. In the book, I kind of describe it as this bullseye of like, here's the rookie. Here's the new girl. She can't even like just bring an innocuous suitcase with her. And so I bring it on the plane. And then the 
I think what you're laughing at is that of the many things I packed, I packed a travel size hair straightener. And Jay Carney, the press secretary at the time, uh, comes back. And the reason why I got to go everywhere the president went was because on the plane, we would do these informal press briefings. They're called gaggles. And I'm always there. And I stand between the press and the press secretary. And I go, I wave my microphone back and forth. And the plane's pretty loud. Um, and so he comes back. One of the number one rules is, hey, you never keep a senior staffer waiting. So I'm digging around in this big duffel bag looking for my actual professional equipment. And there is my microphone. But at least I think it's my microphone. I take it out. And uh, I'm just trying to find everything. It's just a mess. I'm totally disorganized. And Jay Carney just like looks at me and he's like, never mind. I'll just come back. And Already I Already not a good move. No, no. So I'm like yeah. bright red. I'm just like, oh, God, what did I do wrong? And I look down and I'm not holding the microphone. I'm holding my... Uh, travel size hair straightener. And I'm like, what is the problem? And then I'm like, oh, he thought that was like a travel size vibrator. And, and there's no good way to tell your boss's boss's boss that that wasn't a vibrator. Because then, then you're just have bringing to up say a that. vibrator. <laughs> yeah. So that I just carried that weight around with me for the next five years. <laughs> Anybody ever mention it? I Other did than to him when he left. Oh, you did? I gave him, yeah. So there's like a whole, this is a whole story in the book. And one of the things I started doing um, and one of the sort of parts where I realized that writing was always going to be um, integral to my life and my existence is that when people would leave, I would give them a story or an essay or a vignette that I had written about them only on their last day so they couldn't fire me. So on Jay's last day, I kind of handed him this envelope and I was like, read that when you get away from here. So well, you, he knew You it. know, those, those short stories or vignettes that you wrote, the first one that you did was for David, David Pleff. And Lisa, who was your senior, was she? Uh, uh, yeah, a fellow stenographer. Um, said, don't do it. So on the one hand, in reading your story, I think you're hilarious, slightly inappropriately, appropriately insecure, a little, you This know. is from the time I'm, I was hired when I was 24 and I left when I was 30. So, yeah. So a little star, you know, a little starstruck, which you would be, but then you were kind of bold. Mm -hmm. I mean, like she told you not to do this with the story. You get yourself over to the White House because you've got that pin on that lets you go anywhere and you go right up to David's assistant and give him the story. Did you think of that as a bold move? Yes. I think it was very much, that's kind of the beauty of your 20s. And also being someone who wasn't a DC creature is what I call them, someone who was politically motivated. I wasn't giving him that story to somehow get a promotion in the future. I was giving him that story because it was the one sort of way I knew to say thank you. And like, this is my way of saying I noticed you beyond just like, you're this amazing political advisor, but the story was actually about him being really fast. Uh, we used to, like, he passed me when we were out in Vegas, and I was just like, how is he so fast and he's so smart? This is so unfair. So he was actually really touched because he was like, no one really knows that I can run that fast. Except and he for wrote you. you a thank you note in a second. Yeah, yeah. So I, by the time I got back to my, you know, this took place right off the Oval Office, and my office was in the huge building next door, the Eisenhower Executive Office building. By the time I got back to my office, which is like a five-minute commute, 
Uh, he had already let, written me a really nice, encouraging email just being like, please keep writing. This is a special gift and will be fun to look back on. Yeah. Um, but as far as getting back to your question about being bold, of course it was bold. And I think the beauty of being in your 20s is that before sometimes you can even think and it gets us in trouble and, you know, it sort of makes you cringe. But it's also like, yeah, if I were to, I don't know, I'm 33 now. I don't know if I would do it. And that's why it's just like part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was we're so hard on our 25 year old selves are, you know, in college, but you're actually doing really important groundwork and those risks are necessary. If you don't take them, then you're not going to take them. Yeah. And that was one of the other things I wanted to ask you, you know, when I read the book and realized what you witnessed, right? I mean, there's president Obama who is life changing to so many of us and is such a cool kind of a president. There's you, you witnessed historical events. You witnessed him speaking at funerals after so many of the tragedies that happened um, with school shootings and other shootings. How did you think about and decide to write this as a memoir that was more about you than what you wit witnessed? Uh, yeah, I didn't really even decide that for myself. So maybe a year in, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep writing. This is what I do naturally. And I'll just hold myself accountable to it as a stenographer, just pressing record. I, I quickly mastered that job. And so the way to sort of stay active and engaged was to write about what I was getting to see because everyone around me was working really hard. And I was like, I'm not working that hard. I've sort of gamed the system. <laughs> um, and so I thought, Hey, what I care about is writing and I can capture these moments. Um, up until 2017, I thought this would be a book not about me at all. It wasn't going to be a memoir. It would be these this collection of essays where I basically highlight the humanity and these very flawed people who were running the government and like taking unbelievable uh, personal sacrifice to make those things happen. You know, how many birthday parties and anniversaries were missed or forgotten because they were worried about public policy. Uh, and so it wasn't until after uh, Donald Trump won, I realized I was going to have to leave. And so that's when I started taking, I took this leap of faith and was like, I'm either going to publish, I'm going to try to publish now or I'm not going to try to publish. And we were in New York for UNGA, uh, the United Nations General Assembly. And because David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, had traveled with us a few times, I had his email because even the editor of The New Yorker needs a stenographer's audio every once in a while. So once again, very boldly, I emailed him and I said, hi, I'm in New York. Is there any way I could meet with you? And so he was very generous and he met with me and he said, you got your job on Craigslist. Like anyone, you know, any of my reporters who have gone to the White House and sat in the Roosevelt Room can write somewhat those essays that you've written but you're the only one who can tell this story from the other side. And also as a 25 year old who had no interest in politics. Um, and so that's, mm. that's sort of what happened. I mean, I feel like I was definitely opinionated, but when David Remnick tells you to do something, you do it. Yeah. So, Good yeah. move. Yeah. yeah. Good move. <laughs> so I want to read your um, disclaimer mm -hmm. here and then ask you a question. <laughs> So you say certain names and identifying characteristics have been changed to protect the privacy of individuals. I've used pseudonyms, composites, and other forms of disguise. In some instances, I've rearranged and or compressed events and time periods in the service of the narrative. And you talk about how you recreated the dialogue. So there's a lot of intimate information in this book. 
some of it about you, some about some not very nice people like Jason or the Rattler, and some about nice people like Sam. So how did you think about whether they would recognize themselves? I mean, is it such, it's hard for me to read the story and not imagine Jason knows who he is or Sam knows who he is. How'd you think about that? Um, Or maybe maybe they're so disguised they don't know. They know, uh, but I wanted to make sure that the public wouldn't know. So I did want to protect their privacy. Uh, Sam is a former boyfriend, and so he and I have actually remained friends. So he got an early manuscript. He kind of signed off on everything. Yeah. Uh, Jason, I made sure. I ha- I went over it a million times. This is another former romantic interest. But not a nice man. And uh, no, I just made sure that publicly he wouldn't be recognized he would know who he was but that would happen regardless would other people who were working in the white house knew know who it was um i don't know you'd have to ask them yeah but yeah i wasn't worried i mean basically i didn't want to compromise my story for their comfort yeah and you haven't heard from jason uh yeah no yeah yeah and was there any restriction under the terms of your employment of what you could report? No, that was the beauty. I was so unimportant in the White House that I was actually cleared. It was kind of amazing. Uh, I spoke with counsel uh, who was a friend. She's this amazing woman, and she has this incredibly important job. She's a lawyer for the White House, for the president. And I sent her a manuscript, and she was just like, Beck, I... I didn't realize how unimportant you are. Uh, you can actually sort of write whatever you want. You have my blessing, like go forth and prosper because I had background clearance, but as a member, um, as a stenographer, again, because we were there just in the presence of press, the White House staff was already being really careful around me. So I was never exposed to classified information. And because of that, I didn't have to navigate that tricky yeah. line of like, what was said privately, what wasn't. Anything I said was fair game, which is what counsel said, which was pretty fun. So It pays to be unimportant. Uh, so, because that was shocking to me also, that there wasn't some, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, because, I mean, you were in the gym with Obama, you were, weren't you in Hawaii with them for Christmas? Yeah, I really, I really, I game the system unintentionally. Uh, as the stenographer, we were kind of always on call, And so even though my job was pretty straightforward, it did mean that when he went anywhere, I needed to be there in case he needed to make an emergency statement. Uh, So, yes, I got to go on vacation on family vacations to Hawaii and Martha's Vineyard. Um, What was that like? um, It was great until it wasn't. Uh, You kind of went on the plane, you boarded the plane for these vacations and you just kept your fingers crossed that there wouldn't be a national or international emergency. And most of the times there were. Uh, so vacations got cut short, emergency statements happened sometimes back to back. Um, and so you get on the plane and you're kind of already holding your breath and crossing your fingers, hoping, I just hope he gets to have a vacation this time. Yeah. And how much did you... And like, you know, your your nightly nightmare is that your phone doesn't work or like it has somehow turned itself off. Yeah. What could go wrong? I mean, it's, oh, I gosh. was nervous thinking about your equipment. have a panic attack all over again. Yeah. Your recorder could stop or your batteries in your recorder could Did you have a die. backup recorder? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I actually, I am proud to say, I feel, I still feel like I'm jinxing it even though I haven't been a stenographer in three years, but I'm just like to date my, uh, I never ruined, uh, any recording. 
which I, I'm like, knock on wood, but I don't think stenography is in You my don't future. have to. Well, but yeah, uh, it does just make me nervous to even think about. So, Beck, when I think about you going into the White House, uh, so you went in 2012 and you were 25 or 6. 25, yeah. You came out five years later, you're 30, 31. How would you describe the woman who went in and the woman who came out? Um, well, 25, I don't know. I think I was sort of normal at 25. I had taught high school English right after college. So I was an English major at Wesleyan. I had some really great professors. Um, I went and taught in at Petty, which is in central New Jersey. I was there for two years. Then I went and taught in Korea. And then I landed this job at Sidwell in DC. And so I was really happy teaching. The problem was I wasn't sure if I wanted to get a master's degree. And at 25, it's harder to get hired anywhere for teaching. 23, 22, they'll hire you because it's, you know, fresh, cheap labor. Uh, a few years out, they want that master's or PhD. And so as a result, I couldn't get a full-time job at Sidwell. I couldn't get a full-time job anywhere. I picked up all these other jobs. I was working at a coffee shop. I was working at two other schools. I was working at Lululemon. And so I was pretty, I was feeling extremely disenfranchised and frustrated. This is also, you know, I graduated in 2008. So everyone was feeling rather disenfranchised. Mm. Um, and so when I went in, it was just sort of, it was exciting, but it was more just like, I'm so glad that I have a full-time job with benefits. I would have taken that job sort of anywhere knowing that it was full-time. Um, and I took it and I was just sort of um, amazed by everything I saw, but also skeptical and five years later, um, well, at least I guess you should do two different exits. When the Obama administration ended, I was really appreciative and awed by the amount of sacrifice that um, took place every day at that complex on behalf of the American people. Um, I left in March of 2017, and at that point, I was more than ready to get out of there. Um, and I was just sort of, you know, terrified about what was going on. Yeah, and we'll get to the difference of being a stenographer uh, for Obama yeah. uh, and Trump, but I want to talk for a minute about the environment, your work environment, and then the political environment in D.C. You had a quote in the book that you said, in the D.C. world, um, if if you want to make a cocktail party interaction count, you've got to have something to trade. So to what extent did your understanding that relationships were so driven by having something to trade or power make you cynical over those five years? How did that change how you thought about government or relationships? I would argue that the D.C. culture is very much that way. Where to this day, when I go there, it's really funny where it's like, where do you work? Who do you work for? Who do you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's just sort of the basis of the beast. Uh, but at the White House, what was really special about being there for five years is that I was ushered into this extremely special team. And on, you know, the big thing is on my in my stenography's office, there were five of us. But on Air Force One, there were only 15 Obama staffers out of 2000 that got to travel on that plane. So I, I accidentally wow. found myself in this really intimate team of people who are pulling double their weight every day. Uh, and so I, it wasn't that tit-for-tat uh, basic culture of D.C. It was this like, hey, we, we've made it. You know, like, I mean, I'm a stenographer. This isn't really what I want to do with my life. But as far as 
Everyone else is sort of, this is the most important job we will ever have. That was the most important job I will ever have, even if it's sort of a, a funny job I wasn't planning on having. But at the end of the day, yeah, recording the transcripts for President of the United States carries a lot of weight. So did you end up leaving that environment feeling, I'm going to chop off the Trump months. Did you leave that environment feeling, um, you know, appreciative and patriotic or disen disenchanted with how the whole government system worked? No, I mean, at the end of the Obama administration, I would go up to senior officials and be like, so, you know, you can't quit. And they're like, no, we we kind of get fired after eight years. Like we we leave when he leaves. And I'm like, you have to stay because they had earned all of my respect. Yeah. I was so amazed by what these people had accomplished. So now you worked in the Obama. You you were most of your time was with him. What happened when Trump came in? Uh, so Trump was elected in November 2016. I I know I'm the only one. I thought Hillary was going to win. Really? A bunch of my friends were coming back to work in the White House. And so I was excited. I was like, oh, I'll see the first female president. I'll get to write stories about that. Two of my best friends had been working on her campaign. So I was like, they'll be back in D.C. This is going to be so fun. And then she didn't win. And so all of a sudden it was like, I got to get out of here. All of my friends were being escorted out uh, along with the end of the Obama administration. And so then I thought maybe I should stay and see what the transition is like. But I just knew I wasn't going to last long. And then um, the last, you know, inauguration day was heartbreaking for a lot of people. It was really hard for me because I was um, all of my friends went to the tarmac at Andrews to say goodbye to President Obama as he took off on Marine One for his final flight. And I actually had to stay and type the transcript for President Trump's inaugural speech. And it was just I mean, it couldn't have been a more um, steep you know, change of the guard. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just remember like typing through tears and being like, I can't believe this is the new reality. And so after that, having to walk through the gates through protesters the very next day and kind of like having my pink hat in my backpack, it was just like, this is not going to work. Uh, and so, yeah. yeah, I stayed for two months. And during those two months, um, I was just trying, you know, I hadn't planned on this. So it was very much like, how do I make rent? Uh, and so I was talking to my literary agent and then I was typing a Sean Spicer press briefing and she called and she's like, you need to step outside. I'm like, I'm typing a transcript. You don't know how important this job is. And she was like, step outside. I went outside into my, uh, into the hallway in the EOB and she was like, you have a two book deal. You can give your two weeks notice. And it was honestly just like, thank God, which is so crazy because it was the hallowed halls of the white house. And I was like, I cannot wait to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So it, let's go to the literary agent. Cause you're, you're a stenographer in the White House, and that's both exciting and sort of not. I speak to a lot of writers, even esteemed Wesleyan English major grads who cannot get hold of a literary agent, nonetheless, and, and certainly not get a two-book deal. How did you navigate your way to that? Um, I had a good friend, David Litt, who also wrote a book. He was an Obama speechwriter, and he was extremely generous. He left early, and um, so I asked to meet with him, and I was like, what do you do? Like, how did how'd you get a book deal? Because I had no idea. And he said, you need a literary agent. And I'm, I'm especially going into this because I think, you know, this is full of great yeah, writers in college, and I had no idea. And um, he said, look in the back of books that you love, that you want to model yours after, 
And so I just heard Jesse Klein interviewed on Terry Gross, and she wrote this great book called uh, You'll Grow Out of It. Jesse Klein was the head writer for Amy Schumer's show, and she's just really, really funny. And so I looked in the back, and she had this, she thanked this literary agent, Becky Swearin. So I wrote to Becky, who's now my agent, and she was like, yeah, cool story. I didn't follow any of the rules because you're supposed to, like, submit, you know, these uh, documents from your heart into, like, some random thing on the internet. And I was like, I don't trust this. This is too important to me. And so she ended up giving it, giving her slush pile, which is unsolicited manuscripts, to a college senior who was interning. Her name's Vanessa. And Vanessa, you're never too young to change someone's life. Vanessa was 22. And she went to wow. Becky on her last day and said, this is the one White House book I would read. And so because of that, Becky called me back. So a huge part of why I got the book deal, obviously, is because I had this unique experience. But a huge part of it was because I had a 22-year-old who was not too hungover or tired or burned out to take a manuscript seriously. So speaking of hungover, there is a lot of goddamn <laughs> nice drinking in this book. Yeah. Um, was there so really funny, that much drinking and you no, got your what's job so funny, done? No, it's so funny because there is like <laughs> – there's a decent amount of drinking in the book, but this is also over the course of five years, and that is every single time that we drank. So it's actually like a dozen times. It's just that if I had written a book that was like – and then we got to Kansas City, and I was so excited because I had a bathtub in my hotel room. And that was the book. I don't know if it would have been a New York Times bestseller. I think it was really helpful that I was actually highlighting some of like the more exciting times uh, during the five years. But most of the time it was like we got in at 1130, but it was actually, you know, 230 on the East Coast. So I was exhausted and I took a bath and went to bed. Because that really also that's like an alternate book. Yeah, that wouldn't have done as well. No, I don't think it would have done as well. Uh, but it, I did feel like it was a little eighth grade. I mean, it felt clicky, and yeah. people were backstabbing, and there was a lot of drinking going on, fair amount of sex going on. And was that representative of what the culture was? It was just a piece of it. Um, I think it is representative of any group of people who are under a tremendous amount of stress. And I don't think that, like, I think that has nothing to do with, like, politics. I don't think that has anything to do with It was just an, party. an environment. I think that's just any environment where you are just, like, barely making it through on it. And, like, you're, you're just holding on to this adrenaline and you're in three different time zones. Mm. And you're just so relieved when you are finished a day at 9 p.m. because normally it's midnight. Um, but and yeah. it is figuratively and literally a bubble. Very much so. And so that's the thing is like we would never go out. It was just like these are your people that you trust and you can't really be around any other one, any other people because they don't get it. And that's not meant, you know, it was like you would go to California and I wouldn't be able to see my friends because even though I was a block away, there was a motorcade and there's three different barriers mm -hmm. of security. I can't go. So what was the most memorable moment that you got to witness from a historical standpoint? It's hard. I mean, it's hard. Uh, we went to Cuba, which was really exciting. Uh, that was one of my favorite trips. But yeah, just as far as even naming like a favorite international trip, uh, we yeah. went to Cuba, we went to Laos. Those are historical trips. Um, we got to go to Midway Island, which was exceptional. It's the island. I mean, there's the Battle of Midway, which I think they're actually turning into like a blockbuster later this year or next year. Uh, but it, in World War II, it's halfway between Japan and Hawaii, and you can't go there for any commercial reasons. It's just um, science-driven at this point, research-driven. And so we got to go there because he had just expanded this uh, national 
nature reserve, like in the water, square miles of ocean wow. that he had saved that then Trump immediately repealed. Um, but that was a really special day because it was just like, here we are doing good. We're also in a beautiful place. We're also just like seeing what power the president has, where it's just like you're going through these waters being like, these were not protected and now they are. And then they're not. And then they're not. So speaking of Blockbuster, as I mentioned in the introduction, your book has been optioned for a movie. So what does that mean in terms oh, of boy. a process? It's a process. That's what I've learned in the last two years. Um, basically, when I got the book deal, I also got this movie deal. It goes through producers, uh, Universal optioned it, and then now and then two years later, now Lionsgate optioned it, re-optioned it. So who knows? I don't know. It's not I'm working on a second book and I'm just sort of like Go to town, Hollywood. So it's who, a wild who, world out there. Who do you want to play you? Oh, I think we should get someone from Craigslist. I think that's only fair. Yeah, you we do? just yeah we just keep it going. I was picturing like Jennifer Lawrence oh, or Emma you. Stone or someone. I love those options. Yeah, but if we get someone on Craigslist, I'll be just as happy. Yeah, because that means the movie's getting made. Yeah, I've learned in the last two years, it's like Hollywood Hollywood is a lot like D.C., where people say a lot of things, and President Obama would always be like, I'll believe it when it gets to my desk. And I'm like, I'll believe it when it gets to my desk. Yeah. yeah. But in the meantime, the second book you're working on is a novel, right? Yeah. Yeah. The president of Penguin Random House, I met her. Oh, man, I, like, had to sneak away from the Trump White House. I said I was sick one day, but I was going up to, like... Is this Madeline McIntosh? No, this is uh, Gina Centrillo. Yeah. Uh, but she thought I was, like, breaking into the building because I just looked like a drowned sewer rat because I'd come up from D.C. at, like, 4 in the morning. And I didn't have a raincoat, and it was pouring rain. And my phone was about to die. So I'm and like, Jean is, like, very well-dressed. very hip. So anyway, I was trying to get into the building. She wears high heels. She wears high heels. She had a leather jacket on. She was very cool. And she asked me if I was lost. <laughs> and I said, no, I have a meeting. And she said, does the person you're meeting with know you have a meeting? Because she just really didn't believe it. And then finally, we connected the dots. We figured out, no, I really was supposed to be there. And she's quite petite. And she reached up and she goes, you're going to write us a novel. And yeah, I still, I like can still feel her finger digging into my shoulder. And I was like, yes, ma'am, whatever is, you say. She yes. is one smart publisher. She is. She's yeah. one smart cookie. So what she said, you know, like David Remnick, when these wiser people tell me what to do, I do it. Yeah. So Beck, what, you know, one of the things I thought about as I was reading the book, and I don't know if I was your target reader as a 70 year old You tell me. Woman. But who did you imagine was the reader? What did you hope the impact on a reader would be? Uh, my big thing was just I didn't want it to be one more, you know, kind of typical White House memoir where it's like I was really important and I was the last person in the room. It was like I was not important and I was the first one kicked out every time. Uh, but I thought it was really important coming from this background of growing up, I loved writing and I chose Wesleyan in large part because they have this strong English department. And then I knew that I wanted to be an English teacher because I just wanted to keep talking about writing and reading and great books. And so there was all these different ways that it kept coming back to the writing. And mm. taking a job as a stenographer, I was like, well, I'm never going to get to write. And it doesn't really matter as long as you keep doing it in your time. So as far as like the targeted demographic, I would say it was young people who had a passion and they weren't getting paid for it. And I was like, yeah, you don't. In your 20s, you're probably not going to get paid for your passion, but you got to keep doing it and you have to find the time and like the margins mm. of your days and you got to fill those in with what you love and it will pay off. Yeah. And I do think, I mean, I loved it and I'm not a writer and it's not going to make me want to be a writer, but I was sure happy 
reading the book, but I I did love that part of what you communicated. And I think about that. You know, I remember at one time interviewing Mary Higgins Clark, who's she might be in her 80s now. And most of you know who she is. She's a pretty accomplished, well-known, successful writer. And one of her pieces of advice, so she had five kids, um, was widowed, and was writing like at four in the morning to six in the morning before she got five kids ready to go to school and do what they needed to do. And she did that until she got her first book done. And what I loved that I took away as a message is a reminder to anybody who wants to write at any age, who nonetheless has to make a living doing whatever they need to do or can do. But if you want to write, there is the time to write and you keep plugging away at it. And I, and I thought that that was a pretty inspiring message, Beck, that you had in the book for any writer who's, who wants to write. Thanks. Yeah. And it's really not, it's not limited to writing. It's just whatever you care about. I, and I would mm. also, I would chime in that Michelle Obama, cause I would record her too sometimes. And her big thing was when she had the girls and they were really little, he would get to go work out and she would be stuck home and she was starting to like feel this resentment build up. And then finally she was, she finally was like, you know what? I need an hour. You've got to watch the girls or we've got to get someone to watch the girls because I need an hour to go work out. And he was like, yeah, no problem. But it was like, she hadn't even found her voice enough to advocate yet. Yeah. And once she did, it was like, oh, I'm going to be a better mother now because I'm not holding this grudge against them or my husband. And mm. so it's that same idea of like, you have to stand up for these things that seem silly or private or indulgent. Those are the sometimes the most important things. And also they're going to make you better at everything else because you're feeling better about yourself. Yeah. Uh, so we've been talking with Beck Dory Stein uh, and her best-selling book from the corner of the Oval. And I want to thank you for thank you. joining us in this conversation and thank everybody here for coming out this evening. Thanks for coming. So please join me. In yes. Thank you. Happy Friday. Go West. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.